0: This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. You've tuned in today to our companion broadcast of Author Interviews. Today, I'm excited to bring you an interview I had with Dr. Kim Papp. Dr. Papp is one of the leading authorities on psoriasis in the world, um, period. Uh, Today, I'm going to take him a bit outside his comfort level, and we're going to talk about a manuscript he uh, is the lead author of that we presented in our January-February 2019 issue. It's called Vaccination Guidelines for Patients with Immune-Mediated Disorders on Immunosuppressive Therapy. Dr. Papp is the lead author. This is a multidisciplinary report and one that is outstanding. So without further ado, my interview with Dr. Papp. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Welcome, Dr. Pap. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing this article. When I was reading it, I kept saying to myself, okay, um, I need to know this, I need to know that, I need to know whatever. And you kept bringing it up as I was reading it. It was like you read my mind as we were going forward. So we've got vaccination guidelines for patients with immune-mediated disorders on immunosuppressive therapy, an impressive piece of work, multidisciplinary. And I think that the theme as I saw it was, Get some information, understand it, but make sure you don't do anything in isolation. In, involve the primary care doctors, involve everybody to make sure this is all done right. So what prompted you to get your group together?
1: Uh, I, the, the impetus was uh, this is a big gap in terms of our understanding or knowledge. Uh, the, the default position is do nothing. Uh, and that's why there are the uh, contraindications to using live vaccines in patients who are on immunosuppressive therapies, simply because uh, there are no data on patients who are on immunosuppressive therapies who've received live vaccines. And there are the theoretical concerns that the patient may develop uh, active disease or may acquire active disease uh, that could be uh, devastating, potentially. You figure someone who gets, uh, say, measles. Um uh, generally an innocuous disease, but as we've seen from recent outbreaks, that could be significant. Somebody who gets um, varicella, well, as an adult, that could be actually life-threatening. So the the reason for the uh, exclusions or for these very categorical uh, positions of thou shalt not use live vaccines in the face of immunosuppressants is really antithetic to medicine. It's not physiologically reasonable. It's not medically reasonable. So the, the idea was to get together a group of clinicians, multidisciplinaries, because we use these agents across all of these disciplines, gastro, uh, derm, rheumatology, uh, even in transplantation, of course. And um, having a group of clinicians who are like-minded and facing the same concerns, could we uh, evaluate the literature, uh, perhaps indirectly, uh, to say what is the evidence that there is risk, and even if you do think there's a risk, how can you circumscribe it? How can you mitigate the risk so that you minimize the you you maximize the opportunity to the patient who may require vaccination, but minimize the the uh, potential risk of them acquiring uh, an active infection. So that that was really the the foundation of it. Uh, personally, I don't think we quite achieved the objective because it takes, this was a two year project. And uh, I think to really get to the, the hard core of it would have taken uh, either much more time uh, over time or much more time than uh, anyone had uh, to commit to the project. But I think we made uh, at least a useful contribution because the conclusions are clinically relevant and they're not categorical they're uh, cast in a way that you can see that there is some room for maneuver so if you're very comfortable with the data as it's presented then you can uh, very comfortably go along one one direction Uh, if you are perhaps somewhat more conservative then the the data or the uh, the script is there to support that position as well and as you were saying you want to involve others uh, that's always the case. Uh, the challenge we all face, though, is: uh, are those others informed? Um, right. And that's something that we just have to live with. Yeah. Say, LaVey. I
0: would. I like the table one. I mean, it's yeah. the, which I which I think is the it's the multiple statements and and the thrust of your presentation. And the thing I liked about it most when I first read through it, I thought, well, gee, there's there's some motherhood statements here. There's some things that you know you just know intuitively. And then there's a bunch of stuff there where yep. I said, well, that did not I didn't learn anything there. I didn't learn anything. And then I actually read, the re- as I go through the article, and you talk about, you give me the information of the duration of viremia, for example, and these mm-hmm. various vaccinations. So to your point, I can take an individual patient who's presenting to me and work out and say, okay, this person is this, this, and this. They're on this drug. They've, they've had that. And they need this. And work out a plan. Based was, on what you presented to me, so it's yeah. a work. I, I looked at this as not an information, well, an information document, yes, but something I could really work with. Yep, yeah, that was um, the idea
1: to make it practical, because uh, I, guidelines I, I, that are not uh, pragmatic are of very little utility.
0: Right, I, I think you. I, I I think you accomplished most of what you set up to be, set out to. Well, thank you. So to get practical, um, the first one to that I thought of that we could uh, discuss is the herpes zoster story. I mean, it seems like it's boxed up now, closed, we can stop thinking so much about it. Is that true?
1: Um, uh, Humans are not necessarily very rational. So many of the decisions that we make are based upon beliefs, uh, our own biases, and there is a smattering of data. So when you say uh, it's boxed up, boxed up and closed, uh, as far as I'm concerned, yes. But then I have been living with the data, I've been immersed in the data, I've been uh, involved in d- debates and in the controversy for some time. So my level of comfort is going to be different from someone else's. I wouldn't say that it is completely closed because there will still be those who are. Um, more conservatively minded, or who are more cautious, and they will take a more cautious approach. Uh, you you can never prove a negative. You always you're always searching, always searching for the that possibility. Um, I think it's largely closed, but it's certainly not completely closed.
0: Okay, so just to summarize your statement three B, um, but the subunit vaccine is the preferred alternative.
1: And there you go, because there that- are members of the committee who um, take a very conservative uh, position, and they uh, they they said, "Why why would you uh, have any expose your patient to any risk when you can provide a suitable alternative that is available at no risk."
0: Right. So um, when when you looked at this data, we have, as you pointed out, a couple of scenarios. One is we don't want to give people live vaccinations to make them sick, but at the same time, one of our goals is to immunize people and make sure that that immunization we give them actually takes and and is useful. The um, you know when we go through the biologic, uh, you you give a nice list of of um, of uh, the 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 drugs and their half-lives, and, and go through the evidence of what might be affected, it sounds like hepatitis and pneumococcal um, vaccinations may be the two common ones that may be attenuated by bi- biologic therapy and by methotrexate. Um, um,
1: yes. Yeah, so the, the, we, we actually do not have any direct evidence that indicates how effective vaccines are in the face of patients who are on immunosuppressants. What is used in, in place of direct evidence is a surrogate marker, which is immunogenicity. Uh, that's actually the first test of the an effectiveness of a vaccine, is to determine the immunogenicity. So if the uh, target vaccine or proposed vaccine is not very immunogenic, it's highly unlikely that it's going to be effective. But being immunogenic and being effective in terms of um, reducing the risk of infection is um they're different they're they're clearly very different uh, so the the evidence that we do have is based upon these indirect measures and uh, what is seen is that generally there is a slight uh, diminution of immunogenicity across any of the valences for the polyvalent vaccines in the face of immunosuppressants it is somewhat, more uh, marked uh, in patients who are on methotrexate but there is still some uh, not statistically significant suppression uh, of immunogenicity in patients who are on the other biologics
0: so T- the TNF inhibitors being the ones you have the most information on
1: because they're correct. the ones we've had the longest correct
0: and any sense with the new biologic the 17s and 23s is there do we have the same cautions?
1: So there, there are um, single studies on each of those agents uh, in, psoriasis pop, in the psoriasis population, uh, which also begets, um, shall we say, a question of what is the correct population to use. For example, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, patients with rheumatoid arthritis have intrinsically altered immune responses. And so it's not clear how much of that diminution is related to the underlying disease compared to the, um, or shall we say, an, uh, an accentuation of their response to a vaccine because it's largely B-cell driven. So maybe they, they just show some hyperactivity. And in fact, the real response that we measure when they're on immunosuppressants is more normal. Because when you look in a psoriasis population, you don't see as great a difference between the, your control, their native population, and those who are on immunosuppressants, with the exception of methotrexate. So the new agents, I think single studies, are are sufficient to demonstrate that we do not see um, appreciable suppression of immunogenicity in the face of IL-17 blockade or IL-23 blockade or IL-12-23 blockade.
0: Okay. So... Um the patient support programs have gotten so good that we can basically get people on drug while they're in the office and we've had the very first discussion with them. It used to be that we had to wait weeks get get through the insurance companies and we had time. Now we don't have so much time. I mean people want to get on drug they can get on drug almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Do you ever push it off and wait and say, hang on, hang on, hang on, I can get you the drug now, but let's look at that immunization record of yours and see what needs to be done. Do you ever hold back? And let's talk about the 17s and 23s and, um, specifically.
1: Uh, personally, no. I don't see any utility in uh, forestalling treatment. Um m- uh, the, the other part of this is when we look at the age group that we are uh, concerned about, they're usually in their mid-40s, give or take. And so what are, what do are they do for in terms of vaccination? Unless they're traveling, um, hep A, hep B is probably not that significant a risk for them. Mm-hmm. Um, unless they uh, have some other occupational exposure, what, what are they going to run into? Uh, in, if you do have someone who is um, in need of vaccination for whatever reason, uh, then I think it's up to the, the prescriber to make that deliberation or perhaps a primary care physician, if they're in a position to do so, to say, well, where, where is the real risk and where is the real benefit? So if the patient is in desperate states with regard to their psoriasis or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is, well, why wait? Uh, because well, the, the downside is very is minimal. Um, on the other hand, if you have, if you want to optimize a response and there are any concerns about the risk of using specifically a live vaccine, then there's no harm in waiting until the patient's been vaccinated. So I, I don't think there's any um, absolute response. It's very much dependent upon what are your objectives or what are the, yeah. the conditions of the patient.
0: Yeah, specifically, I'm thinking about the fact that at mid 40s, I'm putting something on. I'm 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 treating this patient with immunosuppressive therapy lifetime, probably, and and at least our current understanding. And so I'm kind of priming them for when they get to 60 or 65. So the pneumococcal thing, for example, because the they guess the idea would be you you didn't worry about it then you You, could stop the drug and.
1: Yeah, if you want, but if you va- if you're not going to vaccinate somebody at forty five for a vaccine that's more appropriate when they're sixty five, right? Um, so you're not going to wait till they're sixty five to vaccinate them. And what's the downside of having of having them vaccinated while they're on immunosuppressants? Yeah, and I and I think that that whole terminology, the the use of the term immunosuppressant, is one that we take as being almost like a guillotine. Either you're immunosuppressant or you're not. The truth is the agents that we're using have very minimal effect on the overall immune response. They affect not even completely, they abrogate partially a pathway, one pathway out of the thousands of pathways that are present and active in the immune system. Uh, And we know whether it's by vaccine studies or by the fact that we do not see any profound uh, infectious processes that are occurring in these patients who are on, as you said, lifelong, now some patients for decades on these drugs. And we don't see any significant issues. It's not like the good old days when we had high doses or even intermediate doses of corticosteroids or using cyclosporine or tacrolimus. Those agents, were more uh, profoundly immunosuppressant because they had a, m- a broader a- spectrum of activity. So I think looking yeah. on just on how we treat these patients, where these, these drugs work, that w- we're actually just touching, mildly suppressing the immune response. And well, it, so it personally, takes I don't It back see to the fears.
0: calcineurin inhibitor fear. When we were using Protopic and Elidel back in the day, and whether they were immunomodulating, <laughs> we're immunosuppressant, you know, that's that story. But but you know, in in the next rewrite of these recommendations, we should probably think of a different term, rather than immunosuppressive um, agents.
1: Right? So the 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 category of immunosuppressant is uh, is actually international. So the WHO. Um, or the various regulatory agencies will determine whether a drug is classified as being an immunosuppressant or not. So it has nothing to do with anything other than broad categorization, which is unfortunate because um, unless one's very familiar with the process, it's like class labeling. Uh, Right. Just because something occurs with one drug uh doesn't mean it will occur with all drugs that are in the same class. And immunosuppressants, it's a very broad class, uh, many of which really don't affect very much of the immune system at all whatsoever.
0: And we don't, we don't
1: do mild, moderate, and severe with them? Uh, no. Those terms don't <laughs> exist, no. It's all or nothing.
0: All right. So um, in practical terms, um, when you... Are about to start somebody in biologics, um, you get their vaccination record. Have you had difficulties with the um, newcomers, the, our immigrant population, trying to figure out what they've had and what they haven't had? Any um, guidelines for us? There? So,
1: uh, no. So my my own um, position on this is that uh, with regard to vaccination or or general maintenance of of health. Uh, that should revert to the the primary care physician, whomever that might be. So I, I am not about to embark on determining the entire vaccination history. I do not necessarily have the resources, uh, but it may be incumbent upon me to inform the family physician or the primary care physician, primary caregiver, may not be a physician, mm-hmm. uh, to ensure as best they can that the vaccination record is, is um, appropriate um, uh, maintained and up to date yeah and- for the local jurisdiction if you will, as you
0: point out. the, um, the other thing that, that that I wanted to talk about briefly was the the pregnancy story. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's another thing that often comes up in people's offices about when to stop the biologics and when to immunize, and and
1: so it, you're, you're, now you're going off script. Oh, <laughs> totally. Uh,
0: I mean, I, I, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to um, make this guideline come to life a bit. Ah, okay, uh, okay. Um, so <laughs> if we look at the infant, um, and it, there only seems to be one story there, and that's with the rotavirus.
1: Well, there Story. there, there are two. There there's okay. only one that may be relevant uh, for most of us in North America, and that's the rotavirus. But in some parts of the world, Great Britain, for example, BCG is still uh, administered to infants in in, in um, who are born in a, an endemic population. And you might remember a case goes back about three years, I believe of uh, an infant who died of disseminated BCG uh, purportedly as a result of uh, maternal or fetal exposure to infliximab uh, now the, there are many uh, circumstances surrounding the case that are are a little bit curious the infant was vaccinated actually as as a neonate so that's a little bit unusual uh, the level the serum levels were drawn and there were seen to be multiples greater than the maternal blood levels of uh, infliximab. But anyway, there, there are many things that are just a little bit at odds from what we know about the the general transmission of um, uh, gamma globulins across the placental barrier. But regardless, it's, it's at least instructive to say, you know what, We're, uh, a fetus may be at risk, and certainly a neonate may be at risk if you vaccinate uh, with an agent uh, 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 vaccine that may predispose a child to uh, active disease when the immunosuppressant is also known to be effective in uh, obliterating or at least abrogating normal host response. TNF antagonists, we know, uh, inhibit the normal host response in the face of uh, tuberculosis. And they also, for for any of the mycobacteria, they're likely to suppress the initial immune response. So an infant who was exposed to uh, a TNF antagonist and received uh, exposure to a mycobacteria is more likely to acquire active infection. done. Rotavirus, what do we administer that affects rotavirus? nothing. Corticosteroids would definitely affect the host response to uh, rotavirus because it's going to inhibit uh, interferon gamma. Um, Actually, I think all the interferons. Um, Corticosteroids at modest doses are more immunosuppressant than any of the biologics that we use as demonstrated by the vaccine studies, as demonstrated by response to uh, TB testing using Quantiferon or PPD. So uh, the risk is low. It's just that, do you want to take the risk? That's really the question. And hence the the debate about when you vaccinate with uh, rotavirus, technically the serum levels in the, in the infant will be very low because you're already looking at several half-lives even even though they're somewhat extended in an infant and a neonate, um, the half lives your three or four half lives um, lower by the time you vaccinate with rotavirus. So,
0: and that's at about safe.
1: four months ish, right? Uh, I believe it was six. Okay, at, at six months,
0: then um, and and the well, interesting in, in Calgary, the pediatric ID group has now. Um, actively involved themselves in in the, in the uh, immunization of uh, infants, mm-hmm. uh, it, which was int- I'm sure driven through the GI world, and now that so many people are getting on biologics, they've actually set up a service oh. where they want to see the infants and and uh, counsel the mothers, and it's really um, it's it, it, it's really worthwhile. So um, mm-hmm. hopefully that'll spread across the country because, as you pointed out earlier, it's not something that you and I want to keep up to date on. And, um, we haven't got
1: time. We need to be aware of it, but yeah. uh, to actually uh, be vested in it, uh, none of us have time.
0: And now we're going into measles. I mean, we've got huh. the uh, we've got cases right, in, right as we speak in uh, Vancouver. There's, uh, I think, six kids in Washington State, um, in Calgary, and, and in actual fact, Alberta. They've come out and recommended vaccination. Um, of uh, of infants and the uptake here in, in our province um, is about seventy five or eighty percent get All their right. second shot, which apparently is okay, but not great. They're they're hoping for a hundred, yep. and so we're expecting a significant uh, outbreak of measles in, in Alberta over the next uh, months. So. Um, in the measles world, and I, you know, so first off, I have somebody on uh, an immunosuppressant, an immunomodulating drug or immunosuppressant drug or whatever we're going to call them these days, and uh, their kid gets vaccinated because now they've decided, "Oops, better get my child vaccinated," whereas I didn't before. Is do you do you give any advice? Uh, specific to that on, on the, say, the again, the 1723 specifically?
1: Well, so I, I would go back to the original literature that started all of these, our concerns about immunosuppressants. And if you read the original papers, which were done in the 50s and into the 60s, uh, and they're not even um, general reviews, they're really case reports, it's very clear that patients had to be profoundly immunosuppressed before they really acquired any significant or developed any significant risk for acquiring active infection, whether it was by vaccination or by uh, secondary exposure to a person who had been vaccinated. You're looking at hands full of cases, uh, two dozen at most, um, I can't even. I don't even think there were two dozen. And in each of those instances, the patients were profoundly suppressed. They had marrow ablation. They had uh, leukemia, lymphoma, and in those days, it wasn't. Uh, they weren't even as well managed or well controlled mm-hmm. as they are now. Um, okay, so the so risk in a normal in our, host our, is zero.
0: Yeah, in our it's, population, yeah. of psoriasis group, maybe the transplant group have a different. uh, a different perspective on this but sorry in our population not something we're going to fuss about
1: it's not worth the the bother the risk is I would say remote and if something if an event did occur I doubt that it would be related to anything that we had done Uh, because there's always a background risk even though it's very small say it's one in a million Uh, well eventually someone's going to have that experience Uh, now what it doesn't mean anything All right. Well, thanks very much. Um,
0: at, is there something out of this uh, uh, manuscript that you wanted to bring forward that we didn't talk about? I mean, it's very complete, and I clearly urge everyone to to take a couple of hours with it. I mean, it was really well done.
1: Well, thank you. No, I, I think you pointed out the, the, the major uh, the premise was not necessarily to educate everyone on, on everything or anything for that matter. It was really to be intended to be used almost as a point reference, of to manage those cases or to fill in those, those knowledge gaps when you needed to fill in those knowledge gaps. Um, just to make, uh, one more confident in making whatever decision you're going to make, whether it is to vaccinate, not to vaccinate, to treat immediately, to, uh, perhaps stall uh, initiation of the immunosuppressant treatment. Uh, but w- whatever, whatever your decision, you want to be informed. And the whole purpose of this guideline was to uh, provide that reservoir of information. Hence, uh, what's the duration of viremia? Because if you're conservative or you're concerned about the patient, then you can say we need this many half-lives before, uh, after vaccination before we can safely introduce treatment. Uh, that's all it was about. Was just to serve as a real reference.
0: Well, great work! Thank you for sharing you it through much. JCMS, and um, thank you to your co-authors. I mean, it was—I'm sure—two uh, two years. It became painful towards the end, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's really been something that's been very I, useful.
1: I had dark hair when I started the project. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Kim Papp, one of the world's leading authorities on psoriasis. I thought I might be taking him out of his comfort zone, talking about vaccinations, but clearly not. Your practice will have improved for having listened to this uh, podcast, I'm sure. He's provided, and where he and his co-authors provided a clear path for us really to define our own guidelines that we can use when we're assessing individual patients. So I'm Kirk Barber, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery, and until next time, be good to each other.